Welcome to MedHeads, the weekly show that brings a biopsychosocial focus to issues of the day, along with special guests who will showcase their expertise and enthusiasm about their field of practice. Your host, Dr. Fergal Armstrong. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and welcome to this MedHeads show. Today, we've got two very special guests. They are both experts in their field, and they are both experts in the lived experience. So firstly, we have Kristen, and then we have Zach. Hello, both of you. Can you both hear me? Morning. Kristen, can you hear me? Morning. Yes, we can hear. Great. Yes, morning. So I want to ask both of you, and I'll ask Kristen first, what is a lived experience expert? I suppose in my particular area, uh, my lived experience was in uh, uh, excessive consumption of alcohol, so alcoholism, and um, my lived experience means that I I know what it's like to have uh, gone through the, um, the abject trauma of, of alcoholism, started drinking alcoholically from my first drink at 13, and um, proceeded to have another 23 years of uh, of chaos and trauma and um, so whenever I talk about my lived experience I certainly refer strongly to that um, part of my life and then there's also the lived experience of of uh, recovering from that and being able to return to what we would like to call normal living mm. well we'll get into that what is normal living so uh, Zach what do you regard as a lived experience expert uh so for myself fergal it relates uh, primarily to a struggle i had with uh codeine based painkillers uh, so opiate uh, painkillers uh, it was a struggle that i went through for about seven years uh, something that started off quite innocently got out of control um and that basically taught me a lot, uh, and, but very much as uh, you said, uh, Christine, it's also uh, learning how to get past it and move on with your life. So a lived experience expert is someone who understands the descent into despair, into substance use, but is also able to understand the ascent back into a normal life. Kristen, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. I think there's something that, that to have lived an experience has uh, some sense of uh, reflection mm -hmm. and you have been able to, as someone with a lived experience, you have been able to not only have had the experience, but in, in, the, in the reflecting on the living of it, you're able to realize um, where things went wrong, um, mm. how things changed, and often how you can benefit others by talking about that trajectory so that they because the thing about the thing about all of this is there is a high degree of bewilderment there's a high degree of what am i doing how is this happening and sometimes how can i stop that doesn't necessarily always kick in straight away but at some point there will be a sense of well, how do i stop this hmm. tell me about your descent first of all what was the trigger for you to start using and for you to then become a problematic user of alcohol? <clears throat> I think, um, I mean, I, I was, I was, uh, I was a very, I, I, I would say I was quite a smart kid. I, I, um, I was, 
yeah, I did, I did well at, you know, school, at music, at sport. Um, I was always restless. I was always uh, prone to being irritable. And um, I uh, picked up my first picked up my first drink. In fact, I went to the England versus Australia centenary test at Lords, and it was a rainy day, not unlike what we're experiencing today. And um, I was in the members' stand. I went with a with a family friend who was a member of the MCC. So I saw all these empty, all these left um, lager cans, and I stuffed as many of them into my jacket as I could. Must have had about ten of these cans, and I stashed them away in that place that kids have behind their records, where they put all their other illicit findings as teenage, early teenage kids. <laughs> And uh, one afternoon, I decided this was going to be the day when I opened my first can. And so I did. And by the time I finished all 10, I was passed out on the living room sofa. And my mother came home and found me. And um, that, was my, that was my beginning. And whilst I felt awful, I felt physically awful, I had a sense of I had done something wrong. I also had... A, what I think I would probably describe as a sense of elation. I had discovered something that could take away all of the discomfort, all of the restlessness, and gave me a sense of freedom, liberation Mm. from anxiety and from fear that for however long that period felt, it was worth paying the price. So you had fear and anxiety in your life, even at the age of 13. I had, but I wouldn't have been able to articulate it as that. I would have probably said the thought that this was just normal. Um, you know, we normalize so much. I think all of us do that, whether we, whether we have a, 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 a problem with, our, with a behavior of some kind or a consumption of some kind. I think we all tend to normalize things. Hmm. And, um, you know, there was a lot of chaos. There was a lot of trauma in our family. Um, generationally there was a lot of chaos and a lot of trauma there was quite a lot of violence and um and there was an awful lot of fear of when when one of us might be next to be experiencing verbal or physical um confrontation abuse or what i later discovered was was a a conditional love and so Mm. um, you know that's a fairly chaotic environment to be uh, to be trying to navigate as a as a young as a young person as a young child still and uh i think what we do as children is we discover things that give us safety and um for me i sought safety in the oblivion of alcohol and as soon as i had that first experience of those 10 cans i went through the formative teenage years of my life as someone who would stash you know, four, five, six cans behind the bush at a party and then drink everybody else's drink and then go and find my stash. And I would also be the person who would be the last person standing at a party at five, six in the morning. And I would put my fingers over the edge of the can to stop the cigarette ends going into my mouth as I finished off all the drinks. Mm. And that was normal. That was normal behavior at 14, 15, 16. And, um, I would I would say that I thought everyone did that, but of course I realised that not everybody did. So your use of alcohol was an escape from your pain. 
it, 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 I wouldn't have even thought of it as an escape. It was just where I found great comfort. You know, I, yeah. I, I found great comfort in the morbid mm. lyrics of if listening to The Cure or, or New Order or, or maybe even earlier listening to, I went to my first gig was Black Sabbath at 13. You know, I was, mm. I was heading the speakers at the front of the stage listening to, to Sabbath rocking my eardrums to pieces and um and there was something comforting about any form of oblivion whether it was oral or sensory um and you know what what happened with alcohol was that you drink to excess you drink to you drink to blackout and in that moment you feel nothing and the feeling of nothing is so extraordinary and what i realized is that the other, the other times the feelings I was having were so painful, but I had normalized them. So to me, they weren't painful, but this, this moment when I was in oblivion was so distinctly different to what else was going on. And, um, you know, I think that's why it's very hard to tell somebody when they're in that state that there is an alternative, because then it, for me, it was very binary. I was either in constant pain that I thought was normal or I was in feeling nothing that was oblivion that felt distinctly better than mm. everything else that was going on for me. And Zach, you've heard Kristen's story. Do you feel able to tell us your story? Absolutely. Uh, there's almost a lot of similarities in some ways I can relate to uh, what Kristen was saying very closely. Um, for me, it really started uh, in my early 20s. I just moved away from my uh, direct family. I was newly married and living with uh, my wife of the time's uh, family. And um, I'd always had a bit of back pain and uh, that throughout my life. I was a full-time musician, so that kind of came with loading gear in and out of pubs. Uh, and a member of the family that I was living with was on the waiting list for a dual hip replacement. Uh, and as a result of that, they always had access to drugs like Endone and Panadine Fort, very strong opiate painkillers. So whenever I would complain of a headache or back pain or whatever it might be, they would ba they basically say, here, have a couple of these, go lie down. By the time you wake up, you'll feel much better. Uh, and I had no idea at that stage that the substances that I was being given were extremely addictive. And it wasn't long before one night when I went to a party and I took a couple of endone before I went out that when I got there, I realized uh, very similar to what Christian was saying, this feeling of freedom and oblivion and euphoria that like I could control anything that I was confident uh, and, and uh, okay with myself. And I hadn't felt that way before. Uh, and that was a huge, uh, well, that was basically the start of my, my using uh, something that went on for, you know, another seven years uh, as I figured out how to use, uh, eat more readily available medications like Nurofen Plus, just use higher dosages of it uh, to get the same effects as taking a couple of endo. Um, and it wasn't long at all before that got completely out of control. So how did you use Neurofen Plus without getting the side effects from the Neurofen? Or did you experience the side effects? I think basically, no, not necessarily. I think in the, uh, in the early days I did, but, you know, at the height of my addiction, Fergal, I was literally for breakfast, I was having 30 tablets of Neurofen Plus uh, and a couple of cigarettes and a cup of black coffee completely no food, nothing like that, because I found the drugs worked much more, uh, you know, intensely if I was on an empty stomach. I didn't get 
the you know i didn't get uh, unwell or sick or anything like that it just made me more high to be completely honest which is why i continued to do it so i was lucky in the regard that i didn't really get any of the side effects from neurofin plus mm. all right so you, you did you ever use panadine fort Panadine fought on occasion, on the occasion where I could, you know, get a script for something like that, I would use it. But the majority of the time it was Neurofin Plus. Uh, and I think my body just kind of became accustomed to the Neurofin Plus. Right, right. And can you remember a time in your journey when your initial liking of the drug, the impulsivity, changed to a compulsive need to avoid the withdrawal symptoms. So the change from impulsivity to compulsivity. Absolutely. Um, for me, it came with a certain realization uh, after I lost my job. And uh, that was because of the fact that I had been traveling further and further away from home to get the drug. Uh, and I was obviously compulsively using at that point, but it wasn't until I kind of first said to myself, all right, you know what, I'm going to stop this. I'm going to give it up. I'm not going to do it anymore. And I tried to go through the withdrawals myself at home that first time. Uh, I failed after about two and a half, three days. And that was when I became painfully aware of the fact that without that drug, I, I needed that drug to, to function in any way whatsoever. Um, so kind of from that point on, it became a thing of, oh, I don't just like taking this anymore. I need it if I'm going to actually live my life. And Kristen, <clears throat> did you ever experience a time when you switched from impulsive drug liking or alcohol liking to a compulsive need to use alcohol to avoid withdrawal? Um, I, I think sometimes you do hear people who are 24 hour daily drinkers and, uh, I, um, you know, I was just thinking what Zach was saying about the escalation and um, there's there's something, it's a cocktail that, that occurs for me is probably around the time of university. I've been drinking alcoholically for five years. I'd already had another crack at the, um, what we have as A-levels in, in England. And uh, so I, I had to be in what was ironically called the recovery year to, um, to do them again. And, uh, you know, I can remember sniffing the... Uh, uh, the, the pens that they use to uh, marker pens and um, yeah, just more daily um, kind of consumptive behavior. But what, what seemed to me, what struck me when Zach was speaking was that um, what, what I experienced was a sense of normalizing my own uh, anesthetic. So I, I, I sought more. So I, uh, and we had a fam a history of drug use in our family. So I, I steered away from drugs for a long time. I thought they were morally wrong. And so I, uh, so I would drink 20 pints of, of lager and then throw vodkas and anything else that I could get down on top of that. And, um, what, what I found was that all of the assets that I could have used in lots of other ways, my intelligence, my, you know, gift for, for the gab and all the rest of it became tools that I focused solely on the purpose of creating an environment where I could consume more. So the escalation and the compulsiveness mm. kind of manifested in a, what for me became a desire to go to university, do a degree, get a third class honors, but drink solidly 
through that whole time. Turn up very, drunk. To the... It was salient for you. Yeah, uh, I, I, I was, I was on a mission, and my mission was to constantly exist as a consumer, and I didn't see that as as an alcoholic behavior. I didn't see that as morally failing behavior. I probably would say that I saw it as a successful um, delivery of my mission, which was to get a degree, drink, and not feel anything. And then get a life in journalism, music and, and uh, celebrity journalism, and continue to drink and to not feel anything. And as long as all of that could coexist, I would say that I was somehow succeeding in life's. And life's mission was to not feel anything. So, Zach, did you, did you experience a saliency? Where, where your drug was the only thing in your life. I very much viewed my drug uh, as a crutch, and I think there was a saliency there. I think when it came to particularly social interactions, going out with friends, everything like that, I got to a point where I had so much anxiety about going out and spending time with people, people who I loved, that I could not do it unless I had the drug in my system unless I had it there to like re rely on and make me feel, you know, warm inside and confident and euphoric, I just wouldn't go out. And I ended up losing friends this way because I would cancel plans anytime I didn't have a supply of drugs enough to go out and, you know, use them while I was around my friends. So um, it was a, it was, that was a big moment kind of self-realizing that and, and realizing that I needed to be high to be around the people that I loved, which was, you know, pretty horrible really mm. um so that was kind of a big moment that made me go you know what something needs something needs to change so was that your tipping point was that your rock bottom zach uh that was the rock bottom was a combination of that uh it was a combination of losing my job and it was a combination of failing to get through withdrawals by myself at home for the first time those three things led to me going to the doctor and get trying to get help unfortunately i went to a doctor who was not receptive at all uh, and basically said that uh, i'm not the kind of doctor who can help here's a referral get out of my office um and that was quite literally rock bottom uh and i still stayed at rock bottom profession. for about three months <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, and don't get me wrong, the only way I would be in a, the recovered position that I am today if it was not for medical professionals who were, you know, very helpful and, um, you know, ex extremely empathetic towards me. But there's obviously two sides to every scale. And, and I got one of the doctors who wasn't interested in helping people. And Kristen, you've, you've, you've told us about how alcohol was a salient feature in your life. What was your rock bottom? What was your tipping point? Well, I had uh, a, a long, like 23 years of drinking alcoholically. And it was only when I finally stopped that I recognized that my rock bottom had been bumping along at the, at the basement level for quite a long time. Mm. Um, in the same way that one can, you know, and I learned the skill of normalizing pain as a child. So I, I, I kind of adjusted the skill and the, and, the, and the relationship with pain as an adult who had now manifested their own pain 
as a as a as a high consumer of alcohol and then later drugs and working in uh, lifestyle music journalism and then sports journalism you know i would turn up and interview people like david beckham drunk i would get thrown off the set of the word in england because i was so drunk trying to interview terry christian uh, I, I don't know I, how anyone could interview terry christian without being drunk Terry yeah, Christian, if you're watching, I'm sorry. Um, 11, 11 pints of lager is definitely way past the threshold. That was at lunchtime. And, uh, you know, um, I, uh, <laughs> I I would say my rock bottom, I, the, 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 you begin to experience a number of consequences. You begin to experience a number of setbacks. And as Zach said, you know, you, you hit unemployment. You get friends that no longer want to be with you. You uh, you lose relationships. You, um, you all of those things are true. All of those things happen, and all of those things can be brushed off with. Well, I never liked them anyway. I didn't want to work in that field. That job didn't really deserve me. You know, crazy sort of almost deluded thinking and um, self will run riot, as I've heard it described. And. Mm-hmm. For me, the rock bottom was was probably kind of a combination of running out of energy, and also there I did have a record. You know, I had my last my last drink was uh, in uh, central London, starting near the Lamb and Flag uh, near Selfridges at lunchtime, and I would have told you then that I was researching a writing project that I was analysing the locals in that pub on a sunny afternoon and five or six pints later and then I can't remember how I ended up in Notting Hill and I can't remember how I ended up having arguments with people. And I do remember coming to in a curry house and, and, and having a really horrendous confrontation with everybody in the restaurant and then blacking out and then coming to again in a taxi going round Hammersmith roundabout and getting thrown out of that taxi. And making my way to the underground and thinking the only way this is going to stop is if I make a decision to stop. I I had spent years blaming everybody else. And it was simply a recognition, a moment of clarity, if you like, that I needed to take some responsibility for my actions and for what I did next. So that that was really for me that was that was the rock bottom. Um yeah. Mm-hmm. So Zach, yeah. you did you have a moment yeah. of clarity when you needed help, when you realized you needed help? Yeah, uh certainly my moment of clarity came in the form of a realization that I was not going to be able to do this by myself. Um my entire life, I had prided myself on being the kind of person who said, whatever came up, I'll deal with it and I'll deal with it alone. That's how I handle things. But this was the one time in my life where I realized I, I needed professional help to deal with this because if I didn't, I, I was too scared. I was even scared to think about what would happen. Um, so that is kind of what led me to get the help that I needed. So you needed to reach out to people. Absolutely. I reached out to my uh, closest friends and finally admitted to them what was going on with me. They knew something was up. They didn't know what, but I took my closest friends into my confidence and said to them, this is what's happening. This is what's been happening for the last seven years. And 
you, you know, you might have known that I enjoyed the occasional drug use here and there, but you didn't know that it was multiple times every day for the last seven years. Mm. And for the ones that really, you know, really cared about me, they saw that as an opportunity not to walk away, but to give me the help and support that I needed, um, which ultimately led to my recovery. So you're, you're reaching out to people, your desire for social inclusiveness was fundamental to your recovery. Absolutely. Um, I didn't feel like I mentioned, before, didn't like I couldn't even go out with my friends without being on something or being high. And I, I hated that because I wanted to feel like part of the crew. I mean, I was playing in bands. I was heavily into the music scene. I had this massive group of friends who, you know, genuinely cared about me, but I wasn't giving them the respect of caring about them, uh, you know, in my, in my decision-making. Um, and that desire to be included and everything like that, I think probably one of the things that helped me get through the hard times really, really well is knowing that their desire to include me in the social side of things never went away. Um, and, you know, that was something that always grounded me and kept me through and kept me going through those times when I thought, you know, things were really, really rules and uh, through those, yeah, through those pretty ugly times. And Kristen, what do you think about that? Yeah, I completely agree. If you, you, um, I and confide in, in the people around me that uh, recognize that I, that recognize that I was struggling. I was able to be honest with them and with myself for the first time, and I was able to uh, plug into a group of friends who had. Um, you know, an old editor of mine had been through the same thing and had stopped using for four years, and uh, and it was a it was an extraordinary um, serendipitous moment that my uh, my sort of final period of chaotic drinking and drug use coincided with a with a conversation with him one morning in Farringdon, and um, and, and instead of uh, instead of admonishing me, instead of shaming me for my behaviour, and you know, because I was pretty drunk that morning when I when I went to see him, he just spoke about what life was like without a drink and a drug, and what it had been like for a number of years. Mm. And this was somebody that we, you know, we went to a lot of, you know, we did a lot of chaotic stuff together, and I could see that his world had changed. I could see there was a light in his eye and that he was happy. And I heard a truth in the way he spoke about how he felt and about how hard it had been to work through um, that initial period of transitioning from being uh, an active user. We, we tend to be quite furtive and secretive and, and, and are very good at hiding uh, the degree, as Zach was saying, the degree to which we have sunk, you know, because we've normalized so much of it, we've become really adept at, at, con at concealment. Yeah. And one of the problems with that is that we've become very adept at concealing the truth from ourselves. And that moment where you realize just how much you've been in denial is extraordinary. It, 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 I think for me that's probably the, the pivotal moment is when you realize how deluded your thinking has been how off track you've been from any form of reality um, mm -hmm. and that um, if you if you spend 
time with others who've been through that as well, you will get the benefit of, of wisdom. Uh, and then you begin to, uh, to find your way out. It's a beautiful period of, of transition when you begin to, as they say, find the light, get out of the darkness into the light. So Zach, one final message of hope. If you could tell the audience one thing, what would it be? I think uh, following on from what Kristen just said there, when you start to come out of the haze and the fog of what you've been through, the sense of clarity and the sense of self-worth that you get back in touch with is something really wonderful. And I know that I know for a fact there are so many people out there struggling with addiction of all types of forms. They're, they're dealing with self-loathing. They're dealing with confusion. They're dealing with a situation that they don't know how to get out of. But if they really make the effort, get the help they need, the feeling of elation that comes with the freedom of that addiction is it cannot be paralleled and everybody can attain it. It just takes hard work and it's hard work that everybody can put in. So for anybody out there who is struggling at any point of their addiction, I would just say, keep fighting, keep trying to get help, keep doing whatever you can to, you know, get back in touch with yourself and realize that you're not a slave to a substance anymore. And Kristen, one final message of hope. Um, any any drug, drink drug, uh, substance misuse, whatever it is. I remember somebody saying to me, they said, "Don't make that your friend." You know, it tells you that the only thing you need is that is that particular drug or drink of choice. And uh, isolation is the thing that compounds everything. So connection, connection with others, connection with truth, connection with an authenticity that that is probably deep down what you always crave for. And as Zach said, the, the, the courage and the work that goes into to finding out who you are is priceless. It, it is a foundation on which you can build absolute miracles. Um, and when I think about the foundations that I, that I was working off for so long, you know, those early years, those childhood years of trauma and fear and anxiety. And when I think about what I've managed to create now, a, a foundation of, of courage, of truth, of authenticity, that is, that, is, that is gold. Thank you to our guests, Kristen and Zach, our lived experience experts. Thank you for watching MedHeads. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and I look forward to seeing you all again very soon.